Father, we come before you as a community um, with a desire on our heart to come um, to know you more, to experience more of you in this place this afternoon, in our lives as we live throughout our week, um, in our hearts as we seek to encounter you anew and afresh and in um, one another's faces as we continue to see you present in our community and one another. Uh, God, we ask right now that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would continue to experience uh, you speaking through this holy text and that we would um, be moved and changed as a result of our study and worship here um, in Acts chapter 2. We bless you for this time and we ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, welcome to the book of Acts. Uh, Last week, uh, Pastor Kevin tackled the ascension. Um, At the end of that portion of the book of Acts, sort of leading up into Acts chapter 2 that we're going to be talking about today, at the end of chapter 1, we have something kind of interesting happening, and I'm just going to briefly mention it. Um, After the ascension and sort of the watching Jesus go up and, and Luke says, you know, hey, don't worry, why are you looking at the sky? He will come back in the same way that he has gone. They go back to Jerusalem to a hill they've called the Mount of, from Mount of Olives, and it's about a Sabbath day walk. And this is actually our only uh, New Testament um, Christian scripture account of how long a Sabbath day's walk is, because it's kind of about who, it probably depended who you're asking, just a little bit, this or this. And so they talk about how Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley up to Jerusalem again, just being about a Sabbath day walk. So they go back there to the room where they've been staying. And then they list 11 gentlemen, the 11 disciples. One is obviously missing. Who's missing? Judas, right? Judas Ishkiriot. Uh, we, we call him Judas Iscariot in the New Testament. But Ish is the Hebrew word for man, and Kiriot is the name of the village he was from. So that's not his last name. It just tells you which Judas you're talking about, which Judah. So he is Judah from the man from Kiriot, that village. And I don't know if you recall, but he met an untimely end. Yeah, so um, he has uh, sold the Lord um, into the hands of the Romans for 30 silver pieces. He regrets that decision and um, either takes his life or as uh, Peter's going to describe here, he's going to say, you know, he fell down headlong into a field, his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. So that happened. And um, then they call that field Al-Kadama, the field of blood. And then Peter tries to explain that through some interesting proof texting that they wouldn't have allowed me to do at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, so he says, his, may his place be deserted from Psalms and may another take place of his leadership. And then they decide, um, as they're there, these these women and men, these 11 men that have been following, and women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also Jesus's brothers, um, they try to figure out what's, what should we do about this missing spot at the table? Uh, what should we do? We, we're supposed to have 12. We're down a man. Um, how should we pick the next one? And um, they decide that this person should have one qualifying characteristic. It should be a man that has been there from the beginning, that witnessed the baptism of Jesus by John, and also witnessed the resurrection. So they're going to pick out who that would have been. Um, And then they have two different, they suggest two different persons, and then they pray, and then what do they do? They roll the dice. 
um, because it's kind of it's kind of like um, ink a dink or you know like Rochambeau paper rock scissors. So they got to figure out which of these two guys should come and take the place, and they cast lots because that's the best way they have of figuring that out at that time. Now the practice of casting lots, sort of rolling dice, seeing where the odds fall, um, that is not an uncommon practice in the Israelite community. We have part of that being attested to in the Torah in the first five books of of our scriptures of the Hebrew scriptures. So you know this is kind of one of the ways that you could figure things out. And uh, before you all poke fun and, and, you know, sort of joke about how ridiculous that is, you tell me about the last time you're really trying to figure something out from God. And maybe if you didn't just try to bargain a little bit in that prayer. Okay, so if I'm supposed to go here, make the door close. And if I'm supposed to go here, make the door open, um, which ironically, um, in the Bible, often the open doors are not the ones you want to go into. And it's the closed hard door that God's calling you to do. But we sort of try all these different things. You can think of Gideon with fleece and moisture and trying to, okay, do it this way. No, do it this way. And I mean, I've prayed a few of those prayers myself. First going into ministry, I sent out a whole bunch of letters to churches up here in the Bay Area. And I was like, I will go and work for any one of you um, who would like to have me. And the first one that wrote back, like instantly called me back within a matter of hours, almost of putting it in the mailbox from Southern California. They called me the next day and said, we would love to have you, but we can't pay you anything, but please come and work with us. And I prayed again, Lord, the first church that can pay me that calls me. That is the church I will go to. And of course, none of the other churches called. And then when I called them, they didn't even invite me to worship with them on a Sunday. So uh, those doors did close and the, uh, the cheap free uh, free labor door opened well. So we all have those different ways of trying to discern God's will. And I've heard a lot of people say that the reason why they had to do that was because the events of Acts chapter 2 hadn't happened yet. So let's try to figure out what are the events of Acts chapter 2, and maybe, maybe not, that might be uh, the reason why they're doing that. I'm not sure. Uh, So I'd like to entitle this sermon, It's Happening Again. Acts chapter 2, it's happening again. So let's read the text together. Uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Uh, The other word there for it would be God-fearers. Uh, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And then Jesus stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And then Peter gives a really big, long speech speech, uh, which you should read. Okay. 
So let's stop right there for a few moments and try to figure out what's happening. So let's look at just the first verse that we're looking at. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So what is Pentecost? Um, Anyone grow up in a liturgical church, meaning like a church that sort of kept the um, church calendar and the readings, uh, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Anglican, Catholic? Yes? Okay, so what pictures do you associate with on Pentecost? Flames. So I grew up also in a Lutheran church. This is my homegirl over here. And uh, we would have big red banners that would come out at Pentecost time. Sweet church ladies would make different banners and, and wonderful, beautiful things for each different holiday. And they always had flames on them. And we talked a lot about how Pentecost was the church's birthday. That was how it was described and how this was like the time and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And because we participated, I think, a little bit in what I might call like a theology of contempt, um, these bad things used to happen, but then and Jesus came and everything got really great and easy, which you can only do that if you've never read either the Hebrew scriptures or the New Testament. Um, but because of that, then uh, a lot of us were thinking, like, I grew up thinking that the Holy Spirit sort of was born on this day. Um, even though I was also a good Trinitarian and I believed in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, and I said that creed every single Sunday I went to church. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then continues on. I won't bore you with my wonderful creed. So um, anyway, I just did not understand how the spirit worked. And this seemed to be like a brand new thing. And we celebrated every year. And we didn't understand anything about, I didn't understand anything about this Pentecost word or anything else about the context or the symbol or the power of this holiday. So any of you happen to know the Feast of Pentecost? In the Bible... Uh, God commands in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses, seven feasts or festivals that the Israelites are to keep. It starts with Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, which all occur basically within a day of each other, although the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about seven days, seven, eight days. And then after that, we have, as God commands us in Leviticus, count off seven weeks. So seven times seven, anybody? Good mouth, 49 days. Good job. And it's seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits. So it's 50 days after the Passover. And so now we have the Feast of Weeks. Uh, the word in Hebrew for week is Shavuot. And to pluralize it, Shavuot. So this is the Feast of Weeks. And then 50, so 50 days, Pentecost. That's how we get that word Penta. But in Hebrew, it's Shavuot. It's the Feast of Weeks. Then after that, there's a big summertime gap. And we don't have any festivals really happening until we come upon the Day of Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, and then the Day of Atonement, and then the Day of Tabernacles. Now, of those seven festivals that God commands in the Hebrew calendar, um, and you can kind of explore more of this if you're interested online at some point, but um, you know, you can see how it happens in the early rains or the mid rains or the late rain and how it corresponds with agricultural festivals of the time, and maybe how God is ensuring that as Israel goes into the land of Canaan, um, that they will have festivals that can kind of match and meet uh, the festival of the Canaanites at that time. So some of these have some uh, echoes, right? Every, every culture is going to have a feast of ingathering because you're going to have to bring in the harvest and you're going to gather together, do that. And that's part of the Feast of Tabernacles. But three of these festivals specifically were festivals where the Israelites were commanded 
under all of God's Torah, you have to go to Jerusalem, to the place where God puts his name, it starts at first, in order to have this be a pilgrimage festival. And those three festivals are Passover, a Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of Weeks and Tabernacles. Interestingly enough, those three festivals are going to be very central to the identity of Israel. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is and how um, those are shaping the ancient Israelite mindset and this event of Acts chapter 2. So let's focus in specifically on the Feast of Weeks of Shavuot. If you're so inclined, you can go to Leviticus chapter 23, and here's basically what it says. From the day after the Sabbath, count the day you brought the sheaf of the day you brought the sheaf away, count a full seven weeks, 50 days, that's where you get Pentecost, continues on how to do this kind of thing, right? Priest is to wave the two lambs for the Lord as a wave offering together, wave offering with the bread of first fruits, their sacred offering to the Lord. Peace on that same day you were proclaim a sacred assembly, do no work, lasting ordinance for all the generations wherever you live. The book of Jubilees, written before the time of Jesus, now starts to suggest, why are we doing this? Why are we coming before the Lord and waving this offering? Why are we doing this 50 days after Passover? Ah, let me tell you why. It is for this reason it is ordained and written on the heavenly tablets that they should celebrate the Feast of Weeks once a month a year, in this month, once a year, to renew the covenant every year. What covenant are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the covenant that happens at Mount Sinai. Now, the reason why they started to push, even though it doesn't say anywhere in your Bible, by the way, when you have the Feast of Weeks, you should be remembering the giving of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say that in your Bible. But the Israelites started to push those two events together because they can do good math. So if you go back to your Exodus story, they are pulled out of Egypt on the Passover, right? They come out of Egypt. That's when God sets them free from that Egyptian oppressor. They cross the Red Sea. And for about 40 days, it takes them to get to Mount Sinai. And then they, Moses goes up and they wait. And then the Torah is given. Like, that's about 50 days. So the Feast of Weeks isn't just an agricultural festival now. It is also a time when we're going to remember that God gave us the Torah. And that tradition of pushing Pentecost slash Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, into the giving of the Torah starts well before the time of Jesus. And that'll be important in just a minute. Um, it's also recorded in the Talmud, um, and this is from a summation of the Talmud. The Talmud's quite huge, but this is from a book called H. Pullman Translation. Pentecost is also the anniversary of the delivery of the commandments from Mount Sinai. Sorry, Talmud, extra biblical Jewish writings after the time of Jesus. Therefore, after numbering seven weeks during the ripening time for the grain, the Israelites were to hold one holy convocation to praise the one. The first day the Israelites were redeemed from slavery and superstition. The 50th day, a law was given for them for their guide through life. Therefore, they are commanded to number these days and remember them. So you are going to celebrate Shavuot, but you're going to celebrate it as the anniversary or birthday of the giving of the Torah. Um, not, as we've often done in the Christian church, as the giving of the Holy Spirit, although that's going to be part of our story too. That's just not what any of the disciples were thinking or any of these followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. They already have an event. They already have a holiday. So if I came to your house on Christmas and all of a sudden I said, hey, by the way, this is totally about 
Santa. No, I'm just joking. Uh, this is totally about Halloween. You'd be like, no, it, it's really not, right? This is our event. We already have it. But if 2,000 years from now, somebody started to conflate our holiday of Christmas with another holiday or another event, you would understand why, because they started celebrating it for an additional reason later on. Let's say it was the date that uh, your country had gained independence. Then you would start to celebrate maybe, say, the birth of Jesus along with the independence of your country, and those events would start to come together, and that's what the ancient Israelites are doing. They're celebrating the receiving of the Torah. So those three pilgrimage festivals become central to the identity of Israel. Passover is that freedom from Egypt. The Feast of Weeks is when they covenant with God and get in that covenantal, almost marriage relationship, Israel to God. And the third festival is the Feast of Tabernacles, which remembers their wanderings in the desert. These three events, God's redemption and rescue from the oppressors of Egypt, God's giving this beautiful gift of, of Torah to his people and God's provision and caring for his people as they wander even in the desert, giving them water from a rock and bread from heaven. All of those three events because, become cultural shapers and identity markers for ancient Israel. Does that make sense? You aren't going to forget that you were slaves in Egypt. First of all, you have a holiday that reminds you every year, and you're supposed to say it every year. In the Bible, it says that every generation is to consider themselves as though they were the ones actually enslaved. It says that when we go up to the temple to do the feast of offering for the first fruits, that you're supposed to say, my father was a wandering Aramean. My father was Abraham. I'm part of this story. We were enslaved in Egypt. We use that present pronoun when we talk about these events. The ancient Israelites did and still today. So when we look at the Feast of Pentecost and we remember the Feast of Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, that this is when God gives this beautiful command and covenants with his people and commands that you should always be at the place where God puts his name, it becomes deeply um, apparent that Acts chapter 2 is not an event that's happening in isolation. Acts chapter 2 is an event that's happening in the calendar and the cultural context of first century Jews at Jerusalem, and it carries a lot of power to it. Beyond what we might just happen to read as we start with Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came. Now Luke knows what it means when he says, the day of Pentecost to Shavuot happened, when it was that day. But I didn't grow up knowing that. The Apostle Paul knew that it was important. In Acts chapter 20, verse 16, he is so intent on getting back for this pilgrimage festival that he's like, okay, Ephesus, I'm going to pass you by. He's all the way in Turkey, in Ephesus, and he's going to, it's a huge, huge country. He's going to get all the way back to Jerusalem just for this feast. So when it says that Jews from all over were there, that's not a surprise. It's a pilgrimage festival, and they're commanded to be there. So now we know what's happening on that calendar day. It's the day of Pentecost. And then the second part of verse 1 of chapter 2 says, And they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, typically... Where do we put the events of Acts chapter 2? Upper room, right? 
And I've heard all sorts of really interesting things. I always thought this looks sounded like kind of a small upper room, an interesting kind of small place. So where are they when these events happen? Well, first, let's look again to our context of Luke Acts, which is really this long story that we're reading. We should always read the book of Acts in light of what we've just finished reading in Luke. And the end of Luke says this, right at the ascension, he led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifts up his hands, blesses them while he's blessing them. He leaves them and is taken up into heaven and they worship him and return to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed where? Continually at the temple, praising God. So for all of these followers of Jesus who are now convinced of the resurrection, convinced of his messiahship, perhaps convinced that he is God, they didn't stop going to the temple. They didn't stop making sacrifices. They are daily at the temple courts praising God. And thus we'll also continue in the rest of our book of Acts. So This is what those temple courts look like. We can't excavate. So uh, this is the Temple Mount platform we can see today. We can't see these buildings. They were all destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE. But here's our best guess as to what archaeologists think this whole precinct looked like. That we have the Holy of Holies there in the court of the women, which, by the way, isn't that women could only go there. They were allowed other places. They just also made sure they had a place for them. Court of the Gentiles, and also just a whole bunch of different areas. Temple Mount platform here, and some steps going on up. Where would they be then? At the Temple Mount, praising God. And here's where we're going to suggest the events are happening somewhere around this place of the Southern Temple Mount, Southern Temple Steps. This other circle down here is where in the 4th century AD, people started saying, yeah, that's probably where the upper room was. But that has a lot to do with other things that we don't need to talk about right now, not necessarily a lot of archaeology. And if you've ever been to Israel and you've stood in the upper room, that's, that's great. Um, <clears throat> you stood at least maybe 20 to 30 feet up from the upper room and, and in more of a Muslim building. So that's not a bad idea, but it's lower if it's there. And it's much smaller. So let's continue just to look at this a little bit. Here we have our modern picture of Jerusalem today with the Temple Mount platform and the southern steps. And we would put maybe some of these events over here. Now, why would I put those events there? Because of what Peter says. It's nine in the morning. And the morning time, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. is when, if you were keeping a festival or if you were just going up to the house of God to worship, you would always be there at 9 and 3 because these were the times of the sacrifices. So where would all these good Jewish observant apostles and all these women, where would they be at 9 in the morning on the Feast of Shavuot? Where are they commanded to be? At the temple. At God's house. And the reason why we've always been a little bit confused with this is because it says right here that it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And what's my picture of a house? It's where I live. I live in America. So my picture of a house is my my living room, right? Even if it's a larger house, I never understood how 3,000 people were getting in there. And I've heard lots of sermons about how God sort of miraculously like squished people in or made it so... Anyone? So... Instead, if you look back in our text, in our Hebrew scriptures, it is often called the house of the Lord. I'm going up to the house of the Lord. Even in Hebrew today, it's called the house in Hebrew. Temple's a Greek word. So that's the reason why we got a little confused. 
Because the word here, for me in a 21st century context, I keep thinking that they're in that upper room, but they're not. They're at the house. We have a couple other clues that make sense to this. These are the steps that the pilgrims would take to go up to that upper house. We have some really interesting clues, and it's going to come in this next little section about how are the people responding. So the people see and hear something. They, they hear a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And the word for wind in Hebrew is the same word for spirit, ruach. And then they have all of this comes from heaven, fills the whole house, and then they see something. They see what? Tongues of fire that separate and come to rest on all of them. And then the people become filled with this holy wind the Ruach HaKodesh, this Holy Spirit. And they're, start, they're able to start to speak in these different languages. So the people start to respond quite powerfully as a result of this. In part because, do you remember what happens on Mount Sinai when God gives the Torah? Wind and languages, voices, thunder, the word for thunder in Hebrew, kolot, is the same word for voices and languages. Like they have this voices, like the thundering of the gods. And fire comes down. And the Israelites are like, yeah, Moses, you just go on up. We'll stay back down here. And they are commanded to cleanse themselves, to clean their clothes, and get ready for the consecration as God starts to speak. And there's even an ancient uh, Israelite tradition that when God speaks, he speaks in all of the different languages so that the entire world could hear him and hear his Torah. But the Israelites were the ones that responded with obedience, yes. So we have an ancient tradition of languages and fire and smoke all happening. So if you're an ancient Israelite and you're at the temple when the beginning of Acts chapter 2 starts to happen and there's fire and there's voices and there's a wind flowing through, you're going to start to think, I think it might be happening again. Because it's on the same holiday when you remember all of those events of the giving of the Torah. And the people seem quite impressed with this, right? How do they respond? They're like... Peter sums up his speech. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, all for whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. Well, at those southern steps I've been showing you pictures of, they found over 50 baptismal pools. They're called mikvah in Hebrew. They're ritual immersion pools because when you're going to go up to the house of the Lord, you're going to cleanse yourself. You're going to prepare yourself for coming into God's presence. You're not just going to walk in there willy-nilly smelling like whatever you want to smell like. You're going to prepare yourself to be in the presence of God. And so they found all of these mikvahot just at those southern steps. Have you ever wondered where did Peter find enough water to baptize 3,000 people? Well, at a place that's created to baptize 3,000 people whenever they're coming for the pilgrimage festival. And this is, means to do mikvah. The word baptism, baptize, just means to immerse. Um, I have a friend that calls John the Baptist, John the Big Dipper. Right? He just dips everybody, right? He immerses people in that Jordan River. John the Immerser. 
And so we have now Peter saying, okay, if you want to come and be part of this movement, all of this crazy stuff is starting to happen. You yourself seem to be really impressed with the events that are occurring right now at the house. All who accept this message, they do mikvah. They take themselves down. They immerse themselves. They come back out. They repent. And about 3,000 are added to their number that day. Which is one more clue. Because when Moses goes up on that mountain and he's given those Ten Commandments, the Torah of God, and he's up there, what's happening down in the camp? Anyone remember? Yeah, a bad golden calf incident. Israel's cheating on God on the wedding night. And afterwards, Moses sends the Israelites through the camp as he goes down, and the Levites go through the camp, and 3,000 people die at the sword of the Levite that day. And all of a sudden, you start to have all these pictures where you're like, ah, this is happening again. Fire, fire, God speaking, repentance, cleansing ourselves, preparing ourselves to hear a word from the Lord. Tongues of fire coming out, voices, languages, people from all over, all Jews or God-fearing Jews who are starting to hear not a babble of tongues, not nonsensical uh, nonsense at the base. They're hearing their own language. They're hearing God speak to them in their native tongue. They're hearing it from all over. By the way, no Gentiles added in this moment in, in Acts chapter 2. This is still a fully Jewish moment. The Gentiles won't be added till later when Peter's quite shocked when that happens and he goes to Cornelius' house. This moment right here, it's happening again. And for the people who've been following Jesus, someone tell me, what day does Jesus enter into Jerusalem? We call it, when he goes into Jerusalem, like for a holy week. And they have branches and... We call it Palm Sunday. Yes, it is Palm Sunday. That's what we call it today because we are Christians and we remember that one event with the palm leaves. But it was Lamb Selection Day for Passover. The day when all the Israelite homes selected a lamb and had that lamb live with them in anticipation of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. So the the day that Israel is choosing the lamb, so Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day and he's crucified when? On what day? Passover. And John says he, Paul says he is our Passover lamb. And John talks about, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. He's crucified on Passover. He's laid into the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread when all of Israel is continuing to crawl out for life from the ground. So the bread of life is put into the ground on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he's raised on the Feast of First Fruits. And Paul says that he is the first fruits of our resurrection. And if you're a follower of Jesus, one of those apostles, one of those groups of women, all of those numbers of persons that have been following around, you're sort of thinking he's not missed a holiday yet. I'm not going to not be there for Shavuot, for Pentecost. And these identifying markers of how God is staying with Israel, how God has kept Israel as the people of God, how God has rescued and redeemed Israel from an oppressor, from an evil Pharaoh from Egypt, how God passed over their houses and preserved and protected them. How God then entered into a covenant with them and gave them a job to do. Be holy, be set apart, be my people. Go and live in such a way that I can dwell in your midst. 
that I will dwell in the, for tabernacling, that the word God says, I'm going to build this tabernacle amongst you and I will dwell in Israel. But I'm going to dwell in them. And that giving of the covenant at Sinai is that place where God gives his commands, betrothes himself to Israel. What are you doing to get free? Nothing. God already freed you. But how do you respond to the fact that God has freed you, Israel? Obey. Join together. Take on the yoke of the kingdom of God and start to be about the work of building this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Be his holy people that I might dwell in you. And here they are, Acts chapter 2, standing there at the house of God and the fire comes out and the voices come out and the languages start to come again and God is doing it again. God is dwelling in us again. And Paul will use all of this language. All y'all are the temple, are the house of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. God is doing it again. And how we think about these events will shape our own identity and our own call. It's why the gospel writers and Luke Acts and others pushing forward will all use these symbols and these calendars and the power of all of this cultural setting that they are in, in first century Judaism in Rome. They're going to use all of that pushing forward. So John's going to start with the word became flesh and tabernacled among us because that means something to the people who are hearing John's words. And it means something when John says, hey, behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That's not nice Christian theological language. That's sacrificial language. That's what happens on Passover. And we're to remember these things and engage them again and again. And so at this moment, all of them sitting there in Acts chapter 2, I can just think that they're sitting there going, it's happening again. And it's not just that Peter knows his text and has it memorized and can quote Joel and interpret all the events. And he's very good at that. Thank God. Right? He's been studying. It's not just that he's articulate and can explain all of his current events. It's that the people who are there know their story. And they know their own cultural identity markers. And they can start to interpret the events that are happening in front of them because of that story. Because they know that they're a people that's been set free. They know that they are a people that have been called and purposed. They know that God can dwell among them. And they start to understand all of these events in that moment. And you can't separate those symbols out for them. There's no other way for a first century Jew to interpret those events of Acts chapter 2 apart from the Sinai covenant moment. But I never knew that growing up. And so I interpreted Pentecost quite differently. I didn't interpret it as the hope and the power of what God was saying in that moment. Like if you're, an, if you're a first century Jew who's been following Jesus and Rome is oppressing you. And you just watched your Messiah die. On Passover. But then resurrected. Oh, that's interesting. There's hope there, right? And then now we're recovering again. So are we being set free, God? Is, is Rome still going to fall? Like, are we going to start to have a new way, a new call, and a new commission? See, when I was growing up, I understood Pentecost as all about me. 
Now I have the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Like, anyone shout that at a game, right? You've got the Spirit. I guess we do. We've got the Spirit. How about you? And you shout it back and forth, right? I mean, all of Pentecost was about how now we, as the people of God, as the church, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And those poor sods back in the Hebrew Scriptures, back in the Old Testament, I mean, they didn't have the Spirit of God. I've heard pastors from, and I had to have like an air sickness bag in the back of the pew, um, from the pew, from the pulpit say things like, David didn't know the Holy Spirit. I'm like, wait, David? The guy who wrote the Psalms. The guy who talks about how he dances in the Spirit. Talks about, okay. So, uh, yeah, first of all, we're Trinitarian, which means we believe in God the Father as three persons completely from preexistent of time. So, so you already have a theological problem with all of that. But how dare you look at David and suggest he doesn't have the Spirit of God? But you can do that when you think that the Holy Spirit's birthday, year one, is 33 A.D., or 30, or however you want to count it, right? You can do that when you think that we're the first ones that get this thing. And when we start to move into this story as Pentecost is about what I get, versus Pentecost is about how I am called, and how I'm commissioned, and how I'm empowered, and what I am called to do. You see, when the Israelites are being set free from Egypt, they're not just being set free. It's not just freedom from slavery. It is freedom for a purpose. They are being called to be citizens of the king, and to start to build the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the Exodus is about. And when they come out of Egypt in Exodus 15, they say, the Lord is reigning forever and ever. Like God is reigning right now. God is ruling right now. We have been set free from Egypt, but it's not just freedom from, it is freedom for. It is freedom for a purpose. Freedom to light a light in a dark place. Freedom to go and to allow God's presence to dwell amongst his people once again. It's freedom for the purpose of covenanting with God. And I think many of us look at the cross and the resurrection as something really great that set me free. And it did. But it didn't only set you free from sin and oppression and set me from sin and oppression. It also gave us freedom, not just from, but freedom for. A purpose of being God's citizens here on earth as it is in heaven. And start to live out and push out that reality of what God is calling us to do. And as those 3,000 are added to their number, they're seeing not just is it happening again, but God is even redeeming and renewing and retelling this ancient Israelite story. The last time when God spoke like this and there was this theophany like this and this fire and these voices, 3,000 weren't listening and 3,000 died. But here, 3,000 are added. And 3,000 come back on in. And we start to see again that picture of resurrection, of renewal, of hope, a new calling bursting forth from this community. Now, a lot of times when we get to these passages of Acts chapter 2, we like to talk about the charismatic gifts. We like to talk about speaking in tongues or the, the gifts of healing and all, all of that is fine. But that is not what this passage is talking about. Other passages talk about that, but this passage is not talking about that. This passage is retelling this Israelite story. And we have one last clue at the end. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day they continued to meet where? Together at the, t- at the house, together at the temple courts. They're still observant in their practice. They haven't decided to convert. This is not the birthday of the church. Um, Jewish tour guides get asked all the time in Israel, take me to the church Jesus went to. Jesus didn't go to church, nor did any of the followers are mentioned in Acts go to church. There was not a church yet. There was a house of God, and they go there. But here's this last little thing. Did you see what the sign of the Holy Spirit is? All the believers are together and had everything in common and selling their possessions they give to anyone who has need. When we like to talk about signs of the Spirit, we like to talk about the really beautiful, like, crazy gifts, right? Speaking in tongues and prophecy and miraculous healings and all that stuff. We don't like to talk about the sacrifice part. But at the end of the command in Leviticus chapter 23, where God's talking about this keeping of this required festival, this pilgrimage festival, it says this. Okay, so you're going to do this every time. It's a lasting ordinance in verse 22 of chapter 23. When you reap the harvest of your land, when you're reaping your wheat harvest in the spring, the beginning of summer, don't reap to the very edges of your field. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So the way that you celebrate Pentecost in the Hebrew scriptures, the way you celebrate Shavuot is when you come to worship God and when you bring your harvest, you bring an offering for the poor. And you make sure that everyone's taken care of with dignity. And we have this lovely little hint at the ends of Acts chapter 2 that they still understand that that is the practice of Shavuot. By the way, that's still the modern practice today in Israel. You always give something to the poor at Shavuot because it says, don't reap the edges of your field. Don't go and glean again. Capture that back up and give to the poor. And the end of Acts chapter 2, no one has a need in the community. Everyone's well taken care of. People are extending and sacrificing one for another in that community. And that's the sign of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we look at this event from our own current story of this is a birthday of the church and it's the birthday of the Holy Spirit and now I've got the Spirit and you don't. And we can talk about how we're Spirit-filled believers if you happen to follow Jesus and if you don't follow Jesus, then you must not have it. Then we've missed entirely the point of how the first followers of Jesus experienced this story. God's doing it again. God's dwelling in his people again. And God is calling us out in mission again. And we can now start to bring more of his presence and his kingdom here on earth. Amen? Father God, we bless you, Lord, for um, the continued telling of this story. That you don't leave behind symbols and power and calendars, God. But instead, you continue to grab them and use those ways to tell stories to us 2,000 years ago and again today. And Jesus, we pray right now that as we read these stories, we wouldn't be looking at them primarily for what we get but we'd be looking them at primarily how we can now understand more of you and more of your call for us in this world that we might bring more of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven.
We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.